Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon will be here, folks. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, a quick shout-out to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music and to individual listeners like you who participate in our monthly pledge program. We could not do it without you. Hey, so joining me now, Jeffrey Weiss. Uh, Jeffrey, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you, Ed. I'm, I'm not having you in the studio today because I'm recovering from a cold. So you're protecting me. That's you won't. Right. Yeah, oh, that's yes. You won't get it from me over the phone. Hey, well, good to have you here um, for a really, uh, really important discussion. Um, increasingly, Israel is becoming a global pariah. Uh, and I want to start by looking at uh, looking at a, a U.S. poll. This is a poll commissioned by Data for Progress last, uh, I, can't, I think it was last month. It found that 61% of Americans, and that included 80% of Democrats, support a ceasefire in Gaza. And yet the Biden administration is refusing to pay attention to polling of Americans or back the international call to, uh, to end uh, Israel's assault on Gaza. And... Uh, you know, I want to get I want to get back to that, kind of wrap it all up with that. But let's let's first look at some of the other things happening, including the um, protests at the California State House. You heard about this, I presume? Yeah. Yeah. What? Five hundred people showed up on day one of the uh, the convening of the uh, the uh, assembly in California. Five hundred people filled the balcony, and they wore T-shirts explaining that they were with uh, Jewish Voices for Peace. Uh, there were other organizations involved as well, if not now, and also the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Organization. And they basically shut down the first day of the session with um, chants, uh, with uh, banners, um, with uh, poppies that were symbolizing the number of Palestinians killed. Uh, they were real poppies. They were made of um, tissue paper. But uh, it was a very dramatic and powerful action that succeeded in closing down the session. Yeah, Jewish Voices for Peace, um, if not now, uh, really their, their call for a ceasefire registers, as you know, with uh, two out of three registered voters in the United States today. And they've generated some of the most uh, successful uh, demonstrations uh, ever since, uh, you know, after um, October 7th and all the unfolding events, uh, including shutting down Grand Central Station for a period of time, um, blocking some freeways in California, um, clogging up traffic on a regular basis, apparently in Beverly Hills. So, yeah, it, it's really the the voters of the United States are, are sort of catching up to the rest of the world. The United Nations General Assembly, the, the vote for a ceasefire was 153 to 10, and that was four weeks ago. So I'm guessing if it was tomorrow, it might be 156 to 7 or something like that. So increasingly, um, and especially now with the um, government of South Africa officially uh, filing um, 
a, a, a claim of, of uh, genocide based on the Genocide Convention of 1948. Right, and, and I want to get to that. I want, I want to, I want to get to sure. that. That Jeffrey, but first uh, I want I want to stay sure. with this for a little bit longer. I just sure. I, I think this was um I mean yeah you're right right these organizations these these Jewish based organizations have done a fantastic job at turning people out and showing that there is a clear and probably dominant voice within the Jewish community that want peace and uh, you know and in this most recent action I I wonder you know in what ways that's going to be replicated. I was very impressed with uh, a quote by uh, Margot Goldstein. Uh, this was in a publication called Truth Out. She said, quote, I am the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, and I know that part of the great tragedy of the Holocaust was that the world stood by and let it happen. I will not be a bystander as the Israeli military wages a genocide in Gaza that is fully funded by my own government. Uh, that's a really powerful statement. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, um, you know, not in our name is, is, is a constant cry. Yeah. So this is definitely something that is, uh, is going on, you know, within uh, those people who are who are Jewish within their religion, and um, you know, the the question of you know, can you claim that a, a government uh, represents a religion? You know, um, and the the dominant framing to some extent by um, a lot of our political class in the United States, and even a lot of our dominant media, um, tends to try to equate uh, criticisms of a government. As, as being somehow um, anti-Jewish or right. anti-Semitic, and of course that is one of the one of the the reasons why um, so many of these groups are are so vocal. I mean, we I'm certainly critical of uh, the government of Saudi Arabia and, and the Crown Prince uh, Mohammed sure. bin Salman for for many reasons. Sure, uh, that doesn't make me. Um, Anti-Islamic. Well, and we and we and, and, we and or, or even anti-Semitic. Well, I mean, and because plenty of us Arab are, peoples are, are Semitic. And plenty of us offer criticism of our own government here in the U.S. from the political right or left. That does not make us anti-American. It just makes us good citizens. No. I think you know. No, it just yeah, it would just make you probably believe that you know you you have a right to dissent or that you yeah. you don't want to live under a. A king or a dictatorship. Another person who participated in the action at the uh, California uh, State House was uh, Maital Yaniv. She's a former Israeli soldier, and she's now involved with uh, the anti-Zionist organization. And here's what she had to say uh, in the segment on de democracy now. And at the same time, what Israel is doing right now has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. What Israel is doing right now is a genocide. What Israel has been doing for the past 75 years is apartheid, is occupation. Um, the techniques that are being used in the West Bank are, are, are clearly apartheid techniques that have nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Again, I think some of these voices—Holocaust survivor, um, former, former Israeli military uh, member—these are really good voices for people to start paying attention to. Uh, I think you know. I commend I commend the organizations involved with these campaigns at at doing a really effective job at uh, at raising the profile of 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 um of what's really happening. And again, I you know you you started bringing up um, South Africa. I, I, let's talk about that because that's um that's also really significant that uh, we have a country that was for. I mean, and and is there any place in the world that knows what apartheid is like? It's South Africa. I mean, that's where the coin the term was coined. You know, it's, it's a Dutch, it's a Dutch phrase, and uh, if anybody knows what it's like, it's it's South Africa, and here they are filing a case against Israel for an attempted genocide, and it's receiving, you know, fairly, uh, you know, uh, it's being fairly well received in most by most countries, 
but not here, of course. Yeah, well, this, this case is at the literally the highest court in the world, uh, which is the International Court of Justice, which is the world court. And interestingly enough, um, well, there's a lot of interesting things about it. Um, what is genocide, I call it the G word, is open to uh, debate, but there is a genocide convention of, of 1948. Um, the, it's an 84-page uh, document that is issued by not only some of the top legal minds um, in the world, but in particular, uh, there's a Professor Dugard who was quite prolific um, in uh, working with some other individuals to get the, the only um, cease and desist order under genocide uh, for um, Bosnia, for Bosnians mm. um, uh-huh. in, against uh, the government of Serbia in 2007. So um, these are heavyweights that are, are bringing this forward. Right. Uh, you know, the language that is in the document, uh, I, I read quite a lot of it, and it says, you know, the portion of the Genocide Convention, uh, intent to destroy in whole or in part. South Africa is making the claim that Israel's actions intend to destroy, quote, a substantial amount of Palestinians. So, you know, the question of, of, of what constitutes genocide or sort of ethnic cleansing, which sometimes I refer to as sort of genocide light, um, is there is legal precedence. And some of the same people that are bringing this case forward are the people who did get a cease and desist order on Serbia for the 200,000 Bosnians that were killed in particular in Srebrenica. I can't say that name of that city. Um, and so, yeah, probably the end of next week, uh, the court will issue or not a cease and desist order. It'll be before 15 judges. Um, both Israel and South Africa each get to appoint a judge. And so this will be at The Hague, which is called the seat of international peace and justice. So, yeah, but here's what... Here's, in the world, and there's a good chance that South Africa will win this. Well, yeah, but here's what John Kirby said. Again, John Kirby is the White House National Security Council spokesperson. He said, quote, We find this submission by South Africa meritless, counterproductive, and completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. I mean... Yeah, well, how, how can you say that? <laughs> well, I mean, the United States isn't the world court, and you know, and yeah. so the United States can say that this is without merit. But a lot of the top legal minds in the world, and including uh, you know Professor Francis Boyle of the University of Illinois School of Law, um, would disagree. In fact, he believes that South Africa will probably win a cease and desist order, and uh, that will be a big deal because. That will be, if, if this takes place, uh, it will be now, it'll be official record. Um, Israel will be asked to, uh, you know, commence ceasefire. Whether they will respond, they, Israel has, to their credit, said that they will send, uh, you know, they'll send uh, people there to, you know, to, to put on a defense that this, this isn't genocide. And so, it, so, it so wait a minute. On wait. The interpretation of the, of the genocide convention. So wait, had, wait a minute, Je- you know. Jeffrey. So, so the uh, the Israeli government is paying more credi- credibility to to the uh, South Africa legal case than the U.S. government is. I, I'm and not they, sure right. that's fair because <laughs> if, if if it was the United States that was being accused, you know, the United States may send also send you okay. know send somebody right. to to try to defend uh, their case. I mean. 
I, I think even though the language of Israeli officials are, you know, is that this is blood liable and South Africa supporting Hamas and things along that line, uh, I think their actions are a little bit different than their rhetoric. Um, it's really interesting because um, Israel is also, the United States under the Biden administration finally recognized the Armenian genocide. Um, the government of Israel still does not recognize the Armenian genocide. That's another interesting uh, there's been some interesting books about that. Uh, you know, what is actually, you know, Gino is race, um, side is killing. The, the term, Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jewish attorney in 1944, coined the phrase. And there's only been one conviction in the history for the G word for genocide, and that was a Rwandan in 1994, and that was a court set up through the UN Security Council. So people confuse that. The, the Nazis were convicted of, of genocide, but in fact, the word wasn't a, a, a legal international term until right. uh, after World War II, and uh, the Nazis were convicted against... Uh, sure. Hey, to, to understand, the, the 1948 Genocide Convention came into being because of the attempted genocide of the Jews by Germany in World War II. So here, here we yeah. have, here we have the, 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 the people who inspired uh, this convention now... now being the primary uh, nation that wants to derail it. It's just, uh, it's almost well, mind-boggling. You know, it's, it's, it, it depends on how, you know, it's, I certainly can see if you look at the Genocide Convention, you know, that, that it's possible the world court will side with South Africa and, and at least do a cease and desist, and, and then maybe after that the case drags on for a couple, couple years in terms of the details. Uh, after that, but you know, I mean, I think what happened to uh, the Jewish people in World War II personally is in a category, uh, you know, by itself um, to, to 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 a significant extent. Um, right. And I tend to be a person that at least, you know, I, I don't use I call it the G word, <laughs> you know, in a lot of different realms I, I don't and but but I also can see where there's parts of the genocide convention especially to destroy a nation in whole or in part in South Africa will be arguing definitely um, in part so uh, look, looking uh, looking at the political fallout of this okay so you've got again you know 61 percent of Americans uh, support a ceasefire 80 percent of Democrats do we've already had two um, Two high-ranking officials in the Biden administration resign over the administration's position on the conflict. Um, most recently, uh, uh, Tariq Habash, who's the only Palestinian appointee within the public, uh, the public education department, and he just said, "Quote: I cannot stay silent as this as this administration turns a blind eye to the atrocities committed against innocent Palestinian lives." And you know. It isn't just the Biden administration within the democratic universe that's problematic. We've seen the response to university presidents across the country. And uh, here in Iowa, we had the uh, chair of the Iowa Democratic Party basically ask for the resignation of, of student leaders involved with the democratic uh, uh, groups at the uh, University of Iowa and Iowa State University. Um, and we've even had the uh, president of the Board of Regents, that's the uh, agency, that's the entity, rather, that runs the uh, three state universities, uh, call the, uh, call the uh, statement made by students idiotic. Um, he did later uh, apologize, good for him. But the, um, the Democratic Party just, 
You know, I mean, I, I don't, I see this as being a huge issue this year in the general election uh, because the administration is totally out of step. And even the leadership of the Democratic Party here in Iowa and other places is really out of step with where people are at on this. People understand that what's going on is wrong, that this has to change, that this has to, this, this conflict, this, uh, this attempted genocide has to end. The, um, well, you know, the Center for Constitutional Rights and also the National Lawyers Guild also has has is, is filed against the Biden administration for their what what is called their complicity um, in what is taking place in Israel Palestine. You know whether you want to call it ethnic cleansing, genocide, what, you know whatever terminology you want to use. And I'll, I'll answer your other question a little bit about what you said about the political. But first, it's. It's also important that if South Africa wins and there is a cease and desist order issued at the end of next week or maybe 12 days from now, uh, Article 3 of the Genocide Convention offers a complicity uh, in, in, in genocide. Right, so and that would be, that would be that's the U.S. Where the United States, yeah. yeah, that's where the United States may come directly in. So I'm, I'm guessing that the State Department right now, even though publicly – they say it's, it's meritless. I think privately they're probably communicating with the lead judge mm-hmm. uh, in, in the case who, who I believe also may have may have some time in the State Department, but is, is possibly considered to yeah. be fair. I think I, I read that South Africa is going to appoint also one of their own to sort of look after this judge. But, you know, there's 15 judges that, that will have to vote. Right. You know, the Democratic Party is, is, is a mixed bag, however, because there are members of Congress who are almost all in the Democratic Party who have really been calling for a ceasefire and pushing on the Biden administration. Um, the Biden administration has been forced to state that too many civilians have been killed. Uh, the U.S. administration has been publicly critical of Israel. I think that's a result uh, in part of the two out of three registered voters, while at the same time doing everything they can to... Um, you know, boost the stock prices of Lockheed Martin and, <laughs> and you know, the, the military industrial complex that, you know, runs the country. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, it's, I'm not sure what there is to be said. I, I know that the, the highest group that supports the actions of Israel for their own reasons are, are white evangelical Christians, um, you know, who are, right. are rooting for an end times. And it's sort of an unholy, strange alliance that they have with the Israeli government, because, of course, part of their story of the end times is that, um, you know, people will be either forced to convert to Christianity or, or be killed. But I, I guess I've always thought that at that particular point in time, um, maybe people feel as if they'll be able to negotiate their way out of that part of the apocalypse. But, <laughs> Nego- um, negotiate your, negotiate your way into the rapture? Yeah, I'm yeah. not an expert on Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good point, though. The, the, one, the one big organization in the U.S. that's worse on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict than the Democratic Party is the Republican Party. And again, a big chunk of it is, has to do with uh, the, the Christian evangelical base, uh, you know, and not all Christian evangelicals believe this, but there's a strong, powerful contingent that um, that see Israel as critical to the fulfillment of what it sees as prophecies in in the New Testament. And um, yeah, it's it's kind of a, I honestly, it's a, to me, it's a very demented philosophy. It's a the the whole idea that uh, that you know we we need to have this big war, and out of that big war is going to come something good for a handful of us, for the saved. Yeah, well, and, and 
Israeli government has not been afraid to align with, you know, far-right groups, not only in the United States, but in other countries that, you know, are sort of like, you know, what was it, um, Charlottesville, you know, there's good people on both sides, you know, <laughs> even the people yelling Jews will not replace us, um, which really is, is Netanyahu not, not much different than Vladimir Putin, who over the years is, is comfortable aligning with different political parties that can be anti-Russian against the Russian government if, if they uh, fulfill, um, if, if there's other things that they're involved in, which, which at least in his mind support uh, the goals of Russia, which is oftentimes, you know, weakening the European Union, et cetera. So, I, I mean, these are, these are sort of political marriages of, of convenience, uh, and it, it makes, yeah, and it's, it's, it's not really that difficult to track, but some of it is surprising. Hey, Jeffrey, I got to run to a break. Um, I really want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Folks, we've been talking with Jeffrey Weiss. Uh, when we come back from a short break, a Helen Jacquard with Veterans for Peace is going to join us to talk about an update on the, uh, the Golden Rules Voyage of Peace. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to all of our sponsors, including the Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. Catholic Peace Ministry focuses on nuclear disarmament, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Western Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Western and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open from Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. It's my pleasure now to welcome to the program Helen Jacquard. Helen, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ed. How are you? Good. And we've had you on this program before. Maybe folks remember the uh, amazing sailing vessel called the Golden Rule. And this is, the, uh, this is a ship that has sailed all over the world now calling attention to the imperative for the, the, the imperative need for peace and also tied in with that the importance of uh, nuclear disarmament. But uh, before we launch into the current big journey that just wrapped up, Helen, give us a 
Folks, a little bit of a history of how the Golden Rule got started. In, from 1946 to 1958, the United States used 67 nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands, and those weapons were sucking up strontium-90, which doesn't exist in nature, but is produced in an atomic blast, up into the stratosphere, and it was coming down. This chemical acts like calcium in your body, so we were getting radioactive um, something like calcium in babies' teeth and bones and mother's milk and cow's milk. People were trying to get the radioactive source stopped, and despite trying everything they could think of, Congress wasn't listening. So finally, four Quaker peace activists bought this small boat and tried to sail it to the Marshall Islands in the Pacific nuclear testing zone. They made it as far as Honolulu, and the Coast Guard stopped them from continuing forward, although another ship, the Phoenix of Hiroshima, did make it to the Marshall Islands. The crew of the Golden Rule was arrested, and um, the arrest of the crew brought about national and international protests to the point that eventually it led to President Kennedy signing the Limited Test Ban Treaty of 1963 and inspired the founding of Greenpeace. And so, At that point... So, so mm -hmm. let me ask you, the, the people who were primarily being sickened by the, the nuclear tests were, were residents of the Marshall Islands, um, other, other islands in the South Pacific? In, well, the Marshall Islands is just north of the equator, so it's kind of in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And yes, they were, they were sickened. Uh, the, the problem was that, like, for example, the Castle Bravo test, March 1st, 1954, produced fallout that looked to the children like snow, and they ate it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And they played in it. Mm. And this produced burns and cancer, radiation sickness at the time. Those cancers are not, are um, actually the, the contamination damaged their, uh, their chromosomes, and they ended up with genetic damage That's generations terrible. later. Wow. So this is a huge problem, and the Marshall Islands doesn't have cancer treatment facilities. Right. So the crew of the uh, of the Golden Rule was arrested, basically, in, in Hawaii before they made it to the nuclear testing site in the South Pacific. And then yes. what happened to the vessel after that? So from Honolulu, it was sold to the Pettengill family, who used it for a pleasure boat. Um, eventually, she ended up back in California and was so she sank in a gale in far northern California, Humboldt Bay, really, and was discovered by Veterans for Peace, who now owns the boat. So it sank, and then nobody knew exactly what to do with it until some Veterans for Peace volunteers found it and somehow got it out of the ocean. Right. The, wow. She was docked at a, a shipyard in Humboldt Bay, and the owner of that shipyard um, was going to burn her, and Veterans for Peace members found out about uh. the boat and decided to rebuild her. So it, five years later, she was finally relaunched into the waters of the Pacific. And, okay. and that's when I came into the picture. And so now the Golden Rule has been again recommissioned to the cause of peace and nuclear disarmament. And we had you on this program 
when the Golden Rule was just starting out on an incredibly long voyage from the Mississippi River north of Iowa all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and then we kind of lost track of you <laughs> after that. I know, I know the, uh, I know the journey took the crew up, up the east coast of the U.S. And how did, how did all that go? And you're, you're, it's done. Uh, that journey is over now, finished. That is correct. So, from the Mississippi River where we encountered you, we went down the Ohio, Tennessee, and Tom Bigby rivers to the Gulf of Mexico. And when we got to the tip of Florida, decided to visit Cuba. So we came back with uh, end the blockade on Cuba message. And then we you know, made our way up the East Coast. We stopped in uh, Washington, D.C., and we passed out Veterans for Peace nuclear posture reviews to every member of the Senate and the House. And we continued north. Um, we stopped at... Uh, Groton, Connecticut, to protest against the making of nuclear submarines there. And we stopped at Bath, Maine, to protest against the making of nuclear armed warships. Came back to New York City and um, participated in what's called Fleet Week, where the Navy brings their ships into a local city. Mm -hmm. And then up the Hudson River through the canal system and then all around the Great Lakes. Um, ending up in Chicago in September. Mm, okay. And so what kind of reception did you receive? Oh, it's fantastic. Everybody wants to get rid of nuclear weapons. We know from the vote on the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that the vast majority of the world's people want to get rid of them. But what we found out on our voyage is that everybody does in the United States as well. You the only question is how and how to give people hope that it can be done. And how do you answer that question? Well, we have several actions that people can take um, we're doing education so that people know what they can do. And so we ask people to support certain pieces of legislation, but also to write letters to the editor, op-ed pieces, um, and educate their friends and their neighbors, bring the nuclear discussion back in, because what's going on in Ukraine and Gaza could potentially lead to a nuclear exchange. Yes, People need know. to know that even a small number of nuclear weapons being used could put enough soot and ash up into the stratosphere to block crop production. And um, then you could starve like 2 billion people mm. within so, the first few years. So when you say that everybody is on board for nuclear disarmament, clearly our country is not. Clearly, defense contractors are not. Um, I'm assuming that there's probably a strong contingent of, um, of more conservative voters who think we continue to need a nuclear deterrent. But you, you seem pretty confident that there's a strong, almost, uni almost universal uh, opposition to continuing the way we're going. Is that, would you stand by that? Yes. Even the people that are thinking that nuclear deterrence is the right way to go, don't understand. They are just need education. They need to know that countries that have over a hundred nuclear weapons could certainly destroy right. civilization, human civilization, and is, just by the use of those weapons. So right. having even more than a hundred is too many. Sure, Israel has as many as possibly four hundred. 
for example, right. you mentioned Israel. Yes. And China, and so China is tripling the that, And they need to know that deterrence won't work forever. Right. So what, uh, what kind of press coverage did you get along the way? Oh, it's great. Uh, we got about 100 different opportunities to be in the media from TV, radio, and newspapers, blogs, um, every, almost everywhere we went. We got a front page article on the local newspaper with a nice big article about what we were doing there, why we were there, the events and everything. So um, press was fantastic. And were there any, um, any news stories or opinion pieces that were critical of what you were doing? No. Um, that was the thing, is people loved what we were doing. We were, like, so welcome everywhere. Mayors came out and gave us proclamations of welcome. Cities wrote resolutions in favor of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and other measures mm. to bring us back from the brink of nuclear war. Um, indigenous people came out and welcomed us in many places where we were. We had brass bands and peace parties in the park. I mean, well, even, even places where they thought, well, this is too political for us to give you a park permit to have an event in our park. Even they tolerated us when we showed up anyway hmm. and didn't cause any trouble. In fact, everybody was like, oh, what's this? You know? <laughs> well, that's really, um, that's, we'll that's encouraging. We'll dance your music. We'll pick up your literature. Think yeah. about it. <laughs> That's very encouraging, Helen. So uh, what's next? I mean, I presume the, uh, the golden rule is not going to remain in, uh, in, in a harbor too long, that it's got a future commission coming up. Right, exactly. So we're going to be going to the Pacific Northwest this summer, and we'll leave Humboldt Bay in mid-July, and we're going to go up to, um, we want to be in Seattle for Fleet Week, and then we're going to be in two wooden boat shows, and we'll protest against the nuclear weapons stored 25 miles from Seattle at the uh, Bangor Trident Nuclear Submarine Base there, as we protested against them on the East Coast in Georgia. And so, and there's a munitions depot up uh, really close to a community on an island that we'll be protesting against. And we're going to give a lot of educational presentations, just like we did to the okay. same region in 2016. And how long of a journey will that be? Well, this is only going to be two and a half months. Okay. And, and you, the first event you mentioned is called Fleet Week. Yes. Okay. So when the Navy brings their, their fleet of ships into a city to recruit people into the military, we show up with our sails. Um, you know, just a giant peace symbol and a giant Veterans for Peace logo on our main sails is just an alternate message to desensitizing us to mm. weapons of war. Mm. Well, Helen, I really appreciate your work. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Helen Jacquard with uh, v Veterans for Peace, uh, the organization organizing the uh, Golden Rules uh, sailboat tour all, all over the place. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, so after, the, after your trip northwest, any subsequent plans, or will that kind of remain, remain to be a scene? It remains to be seen. It's a little soon for that planning. But please um, check our website, VFP, I like Veterans for Peace, vfpgoldenrule.org, 
and you'll find a current schedule there for what we're planning. Great. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. When we come back from a short break, folks, uh, I'm going to be talking with a guy who um, has befriended a dumpster, um, made a bunch of money doing that, and also done an amazing amount of repurposing of stuff that we just toss away. Great story. Back in a minute with that on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures great and small for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so you know, I, you know, I like to have folks on this program who are doing interesting and important work in their communities. You know, and after a couple email exchanges and a phone call with Steve Hankin, I decided, hey, my audience needs to meet this guy. Uh, something uh, Steve wrote to me was this. He said, uh, quote, taking an active role in making things even a tiny bit better does have a psychological effect on both the giver and the receiver. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you. And a lot of your good work involves dumpsters. But before we get into that, uh, tell me, where, where do you live and what's your background? I live in Monticello, Iowa. And, uh, it's a small town, 4,000 people or a little less. And I moved here about eight years ago. And my background is I was an archaeologist for 10 years, and I did a lot of sheet metal work before that. Uh, and I'm retired now. Okay, so you're as an archaeologist, you're used to digging. That's for sure. Yeah, and so at some point, you decided to dig into a dumpster. Well, yeah, I guess it, you could say that. You may, you might be the oldest dumpster diver I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, I, I guess it started with a with the uh, the Monticello's uh, football team's homecoming game. Well, the the first time I went out. I went to the Pitched Rocks uh, takeout where they they take their canoes from Monticello down to Pitched Rocks, 
and they had set up a dumpster down there, and I'd heard that they were cleaning out the canoes when they came in mm. and taking all the cans uh, with the canoe people. And then I found this dumpster down there, and it was full of cans. So I thought, well, this is ridiculous. I'm going to take care of this. And that was three years ago. And those are the, the first summer I did about $700 worth. The second summer, $750. And the third summer, $850. Okay. So it's a payable job. <laughs> well, it's a payable job, but the wage hasn't gone up since the 1970s because the, the nickel redemption that the Iowa legislature put for returning a can or a bottle is still the same, of course. So, um, but you collect more than more than redeemable cans and bottles. You also collect bottles that most people would consider trash. Well, I collect a lot of stuff. Um, there's a lot of beer that ends up in that uh, dumpster, and so I, I end up with a lot of beer and a lot of mixed drinks. And on top of that, <laughs> I collect the water. Um, I use it to water my plants and stuff in the summertime. I also collect all the uh, extra food that people throw away, uh, bread and sandwiches and stuff like that. And I feed my brother-in-law's chickens with it. Well, and they come running whenever they see me coming up the drive. Yeah, we raise chickens too, and we know that they are huge fans of scraps. So so what do you, what do, you do with the uh, the beer and other, other drinks that you find in the dumpsters? Well, I drink it. Or I offer it to my brother. <laughs> is it still He's, is uh, it still drinkable? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's all sealed up. Okay. And usually, some of it's even cold. Well, sure. Yeah. This time of the year, it might even be frozen. <laughs> well, yeah. Now. Yeah, yeah. How do other people feel? And people in your town feel about you doing this? Well, obviously, they think it's a little disgusting, but. On the other hand, when I tell them how much money I make out of the dumpster, they're going like they can't believe it. What's your What's your total haul over the course of your dumpster diving career? Oh, uh, it's probably right around twenty two hundred dollars. Right, that's nothing to sneeze at. And what do you do with the money? Or that's that's a personal question. Well, that's that's where the good part comes in. It's my mad money, so I can spend it any way I like to because, well, it didn't cost me anything really, other than my time. And so that's where my political action money comes from. Uh, just the other day, we have uh, a group of people that are trying to get started with a, uh, a clinic for uh, Latinos. And uh, they are going to rent our local community building once a month and uh, do a little uh, medical service there for they take blood pressure and do the, the minimal kinds of things that most people don't get done. Right. And um, so I asked, they said, well, since you're going to pay rent at the community building, I'll help you with the rent. And they said, that'd be great. So I'm kicking in a hundred bucks to pay rent for a couple of months and maybe I'll put in some more. Wow. That's, that's really cool. So I'm, 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 I'm guessing most people who collect money, who make money collecting bottles and cans, don't do that. And some of them honestly can't afford to do that. They, they, you know, some of the folks we see in our community here in Des Moines, uh, they're barely able to uh, 
you know, get by with the few bottles and cans they collect. It sounds like you kind of stumbled upon a gold mine in your community, but also <clears throat> what you're doing with it is, is very commendable. Um, and so beyond, beyond your ability to help out in the community with that, that money, yeah, I just my observation is you're able to take a bunch of food that was going to be wasted, turn it into chicken feed. You're able to take water that would be wasted and turn it into a resource for your plants and your trees. And I'm not sure I'd want to drink the beer I found in the dumpster, but I, I commend you on giving that a shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really not too bad. Yeah, yeah. But what? I mean, I, I guess I'm surprised people throw away beer. But uh, what do I know? Well, the thing that's most irritating is the fact that when in the last legislature they did away with uh, the grocery stores taking back cans. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask you about and, that. And consequently, lots of people are not returning their cans, and so they just throw it in the, the garbage. Ah, okay. So the amount of cans available has increased. That's for sure. Uh, I hadn't even thought and of that. And the number of places to recycle them has in decreased. Right. Yeah. No, those, uh, and again, part of the problem is back in 19, I think 72, was it? The bottle bill was established under Governor Ray, a right. Republican governor. And uh, it was, the, the, you could redeem a can for a nickel back then. And it's yes. still a nickel. Like more than half a century later, it's still a nickel. You know, if anybody, if anybody expected that whatever minimum wage they made back in the 70s was still going to be in place today, you know, that would be unthinkable. But basically, that, you know, that, that value has not changed. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, where, where, do you, where do you see this going from here? Well, now it's wintertime and, and the, the canoes are not on the river anymore. I uh, spotted a dumpster behind my house in an apartment house, and I just got curious about it. So... Um, in the last two days, I picked up 125 cans from that one dumpster. Wow. And it's, it seems to be growing. And so, you, spent, well, of course, it's, we just recently went through the new year, so you, you're likely to find lots of cans. Right. But uh, it's a lot more not, uh, messy, but uh, yeah, th than when you get the dumpster from the uh, takeout because that's pretty much all cans and right. this is everything so. so with the grocery stores some of them many of them no longer taking taking cans and bottles where do you bring them uh locally we have a recycling center here in, in in monticello yeah well that's good and uh, a lot of places don't have one. by people that are handicapped and it gives them an opportunity too especially in the winter time when there's fewer cans coming in right and do you have any, uh, I'm just curious, is there any criticism from your city council, the police, anyone else? I haven't run into it yet. And you also, have you run into any, anybody who says, hey, Steve, this is a great idea, I want to join you? Not that I've run across yet. All right. <laughs> so one thing I'm curious about is what does, what, what is the attire, what, what is the gear, the uniform for a dumpster diver? What do you... Gloves. Gloves, okay, and... Uh, Anything else? Good shoes? Um, I usually don't climb in ah. uh, the, the dumpsters. I stay outside of them. There's very seldom I would even need to climb into a dumpster. And I can probably pick as many cans out of the dumpster 
uh, from outside of it as I can any other way. Okay. And so a little a grabber would would be a real uh, help to uh, pull cans out of the out of the middle of the a dumpster. You don't have a grabber now, though. Oh yes, I oh, do. You do? Okay, good. I've, I've yeah. wore out one already. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I yeah, I, I'm I'm almost surprised that uh, that more people don't do this, uh, given the difficulty of the times and given the growing concern people have for uh, you know cleaning up our world. Um, I'm also, I guess, surprised that people still throw food away, throw water and beer, apparently. Um, and apparently, didn't you say, didn't you tell me at one place, at one football game, you were, you know, browsing through the stands after everybody had left and you found some bills as well, some dollar bills? I found two 20s and a five dollar bill. Wow. It literally, it was a really windy night, so I imagine what happened, somebody opened their wallet and it just took off and uh, they didn't bother to go look for it. Yeah. Huh. Well, and again, Steve, I, I, I think what you're doing is interesting, uh, fascinating, commendable. Um, it's not what I'd want to do. Uh, uh, and I, I think that's probably probably more, more people would, would be in my camp on that. But um, I think it's great that you've developed a system to make it work and that you're doing really good things with the money and the products you're, you're salvaging. Well, I've been doing this for a long time before I ever got into the dumpster business. It was one I, I used to survive on when times were tough. So mm, Yeah. Well, good for you. And um, I, I guess I have one other question. I would think some of your primary competitors might be raccoons. Do you ever run into raccoons? I have not run into a raccoon as yet. Okay. Well, many of them listen to this program, so now that the word's out, you might expect some competition. <laughs> well, that's fine. I, I, I look forward to it. Okay. Share the, share the wealth with the raccoons. That's right. All right. Steve, <laughs> hey, thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Yep, no problem. Folks, we've been talking with Steve Hankin from Monticello, Iowa, about his, um, his adventures in, uh, in a couple dumpsters in his hometown. Back in a minute, when Kathy joins me, we're going to be talking about uh, our farm and food segment. We're going to be answering January garden questions with our best attempt at answers. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. 
Hey, thanks to our sponsors again, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, Kathy's with me, folks. That means it's time for farm and food conversation. And it's the first week of the month, so it's time for our January garden Q&A. Uh, and no, no, most people aren't thinking, January, what am I going to do in my garden? But you should be. A lot of people are. Oh, good. I mean, okay. Are you getting some questions? A lot. Of, well, the garden forums that, that uh, we pay attention to, um, yeah, people are, are excited. They're, they're planning ahead. So the first question um, is one that, that spoke to us because somebody says, I've never grown my own sweet potato slips before that's the the element that, of the sweet potato that you used to start a new plant when do you guys what uh, when do you guys do that uh when do you start growing them so we kind of had the we same we haven't done this yet we haven't we need which to. is ridiculous it's going to happen this year it always sneaks up I'm on us i'm excited about this i'm getting hungry for sweet potato pie right now we have some out I know. in the kitchen we do, right actually. Now from last year's sweet potatoes yeah. but but we we let the time slip get it by us um, to start the slips, right. and then we realize, oh, we forgot. So when to start should we the be slips. starting them? We should be starting them uh, six to eight weeks, uh, or ten weeks before we want to plant them. So because Des Moines' last frost of the year is scheduled to be or predicted to be April twenty fourth, that means we need to start our slips on Valentine's Day. And that's interesting to me because uh, Des Moines' last frost date for years was May 10th. It's, it's, and everything's yeah. changing, right? Things are changing. Okay, so, and, and how do you how do you start a slip? Well, first I'm going to say maybe we should start a week before Valentine's Day because sometimes safe, they, sure. sometimes it takes them a little longer. How do you do it? Well, there's the water method where you stick toothpicks in them and put them in the water, but you and I are so clumsy that I really Speak don't recommend that. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'll speak for myself, and I'll imagine what I know about you. And uh, the, the the soil method is what I like, and um, because we're kind of soil people, we're dirty I think people. The, the nutrients in yeah. there. So um, you really just need a few things. You need your sweet potatoes, and get some get some organic, locally grown right. if you can. But get something good without you know chemicals. Well, they probably wouldn't be locally grown this time of the year. True that. Yeah. Yeah. But you want. Or, or something somebody sure. saved from last year, perhaps, okay. and not with a wax coating or anything that makes them gotcha. pretty, that kind of thing. And you need a few of them. Each potato can produce 10 to 20 good slips. So, oh. you know, figure out how many you want to plant. So for us, that would be like two potatoes. Two and, or three if we want to be and you, safe. And do you plant them in the soil? Well, kind of. You don't really plant them um, the way you think about a plant with the root end down. You get a shallow, uh, like a seed starting tray kind of a thing mm -hmm. that with, you know, three, four inches of soil space in it and maybe some drainage. And uh, you put the potato long ways or like it's lying down for a nap, like, not mm. like it's standing up just to wave hello. Okay. And you put nap, it in there. Nap, not hello. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> you put it in there. Um, it's nice with some potting soil. And it's nice to have a little straw to keep over the top. Um, once you add your moisture, just to kind of settle it in, keep it moist but not wet. And within, um, 
you know, uh, how many days, uh, when, when they're five to six inches long, the, the shoots start coming out of them, the, yeah. the like stems. I'm getting excited about this. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be doing a follow-up program on yeah. sweet potatoes in May. So then you put those stems in the water, yeah. let them root, and then you plant them. So related to that, we get questions about starting seedlings indoor. We get this all the time. This is the most common question. And, and for us, we've got peach seeds and artichokes started, mm-hmm. but nothing else yet. But... Our seeds are on the way. And yeah. oh, by the yeah, way, if you haven't seeds. ordered seeds, now, now, yeah, now. Yeah. Don't don't wait another minute. That means some of the garden centers are running out. They are. Yeah. They are. So we have ordered uh, you know, all of the seeds that we don't save ourselves. And uh, what's what's the first seed that we'll Onions start? and leeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then eggplants just seem to take a long time. And you really we want to get eggplant a really good head start so they're Big enough to you know be be be, uh, be viable when they when they go in the ground, you know tomatoes though gosh, those things just take off like crazy so they we don't, we don't even not too we don't even plant those till mid March and they have to go in the soil when the soil is nice and warm yeah. so don't don't rush that because otherwise you're going to have a great big root bound tomato seedling but we'll do uh, yeah, leeks and onions real soon and before the beginning of February eggplant and then in, in February. Cabbages, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, uh, celery, and um, uh, peppers, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, you saw a question about rabbits. Yeah, I've heard a few people, and I've had this question myself too in the past, but uh, getting better at raising rabbits, how do you keep rabbits warm in the winter? Well, first Knit of all, them little sweaters. you don't need to be because they're already wearing yes, they big are. fluffy sweaters. They're fur coats. They actually, rabbits don't like it when it gets above 70, 75, you know, but... When it's cold, they're they're pretty darn happy. Um, of course, it's more of a challenge when you've got baby rabbits, and we we have baby rabbits that are about two weeks old. They're getting um, cute. They're very cute, and uh, and they'll be fine. You know, we we do make sure there's plenty of straw in the hutch. You know, give them some bedding there, uh, and then blankets over the sides mm-hmm. if it gets to be too. They don't. We're they, going to start wind tonight. Yeah, so. wind, wind is a problem, uh, and and moisture is a problem, but mm-hmm. cold is not such a big deal. So okay. anyway, not like us. Um, I just love this question because it's somebody near Waverly, Iowa, and they said uh, they want to know who's interested in, in a garden space. They describe a thirty by seventy foot fenced in garden that, that's been naturally fertilized with no chemicals, and they said they're just too busy to garden and and uh, they want somebody else to be able to use the space. And I just uh, yeah, I just give them the best question prize right now. Right, and the prize is my appreciation when we asked we we asked this question of our neighbors and we have a small neighborhood it's only like five blocks by five blocks mm-hmm. uh, you know years ago we said we'd like to garden other people's yards if they don't want to garden it and we have we had seven people mm-hmm. seven places that we gardened and wow. and it was wonderful and uh yeah good one last quick question garlic uh, Some people's garlic is already sprouting, including because us. Because it's been so warm. Get get it covered with a little more straw to protect those little shoots that might yeah. be sticking out uh, from the cold that's coming right yeah. now. We're going to be putting a little more straw down on ours this week. So, All right. Hey, uh, thanks again, Kathy, for joining us. Thanks to our guests today, Jeffrey Weiss, Helen Jacquard, and Steve Hankin. Thanks to our production team with Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, 
Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Iowa session for our music. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio. Soon as we all cook sweet potatoes.